means to get your Bible open, get there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we continue here in this chapter really following along with that thought that Paul has brought up there in chapter 8, where, you know, these chapters seem like they're kind of jumping from one thought to the next, but they're really continuing the thought. That's why it's so wonderful to teach through God's word, verse by verse, chapter to chapter, to see the flow and the context that the writers are writing. And Paul has been writing in chapter eight to address you know, the Corinthian church and, and some of the liberties they've been experiencing. Some are worried about you know, meat that was sacrificed to idols. Is it okay to eat? And, and Paul addressed that in chapter eight and talked about our, our freedoms and liberties in Christ, but how we don't want to exercise our liberties to the detriment of others. Then in chapter nine, Paul addressed or illustrated how he's a guy that has laid down some of his own freedoms and liberties for the sake of others. Um, and then in the end of chapter nine, he said, listen, we're, we're running this race. And when you run a race, you run a race to do what? To win, thank you. To win, you wanna do well in it, right? And so Paul ends chapter nine by saying, I then discipline my body that when I'm finished, I've not disqualified myself or I've not done anything to disprove the ministry and, and the gospel that I've shared with people that others will say, oh, well, I hear what you said, but then I've seen what you've done and that doesn't seem to add up, Paul. I don't know if I want anything to do with that. And he says, I discipline myself so as to not disqualify myself. So this is where chapter 10 now plays in because it would seem that some of the Christians in Corinth were feeling a little bit kind of confident or overconfident in themselves thinking, oh, Paul, listen, uh, we don't need to discipline ourselves. Man, we are a spiritual bunch. Have you seen us exercising our gifts of the spirit? We've all been baptized. We partake of the Lord's supper regularly. Oh man, have you seen how spiritual we are? We're not going to let anything come and trip us up. But Paul now in chapter 10 brings us through the history of Israel. Lessons learned from Israel because he says, though these are people that have experienced the incredible blessings and privileges of God, they've seen God at work, miracle after miracle, though he says experiences don't always equate to effectiveness. That, that church in Corinth, they might be experiencing a lot of great things, but experience doesn't always equate to effectiveness. We have to be on guard and be sure that we're not allowing things to come in and trip us up and move us away from the things of the Lord. So Paul takes us down memory lane now to reveal lessons learned through Israel. These are examples meant to help the church and us to be disciplined so that we will not be disqualified or disproved. It's been said that those who don't study history are doomed to repeat its errors. You've all heard that. It's also been said that those who do study history find other ways to err. So let's be sure that we're not skirting around the issue here and trying to find other ways that maybe will trip us up. Let's be confident in the word of God, learning from the word of God here today that we don't walk in potential errors that might disqualify or disprove us and the witness that we want to give. So Paul looks to Israel here. I'm going to be... I'm, going to be talking fast. You, you all know I talk fast already. I'm going to be talking probably faster than normal because we got a lot to cover and this is great stuff to look into. So, oh man. All right. Listen to it later, like at half speed if you need to. Um, so we're going to look at three things here today in, in these first 13 verses of chapter 10, the advantages enjoyed by Israel, the apostasy committed by Israel, but then the appeal made for us now. And that's what we're going to look at. So first of all, the first four verses, Let's look at the advantages enjoyed by 
Israel. So it says there in verse one, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul says, listen guys, I don't want you to be unaware or in other words, ignorant. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to think that, oh no, no, Paul, we're okay. Look at how great we are. We're, we're spiritual, we, we attend church, right? We're not, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Understand that others have gone before you with even greater blessings that they've experienced and they've been tripped up. Don't, don't fall prey to temptation or to errors that might disqualify you here. Learn the lesson, don't be ignorant of these things. So we're gonna embark on this Israel tour today. This is great. Uh, it's, a, it's a sweet passage here. Not an Israel tour like we like to do, go in Israel, but we're gonna see the first tour by Israel as God leads them out of Egypt and takes them into the promised land. And the journey along the way, there are many lessons to be learned. First of all, it says that they were all under the cloud. You see that there in verse one, right? They were all under the cloud. Sounds like kind of a, a fall day in Vancouver. We've all experienced that, under the cloud. And you go, under the cloud sounds kind of boring. What's that all about? Well, that was the very presence of God that was, that was there for them. And again, you go, why a cloud? That seems so kind of just dry and, and dull. Like, why not some kind of like, you know, like thunder and lightning or something, or just even the sun would be better. Why a cloud? That seems so just dreary. But remember, Israel is coming out of Egypt. They're being led to the wilderness. Guess what? They're in the Middle East. And if you've ever been there, you know, it gets very hot there. They're traveling through the desert. Ever been in a desert in the summertime? So I remember one time I was driving to California with a buddy of mine, this back in 94, and we're driving in, our, in my Geo Metro. And, and, we're, making way, and, and we, we're making a little pit stop. To, to Las Vegas. Now, I know you're all thinking, oh my goodness, now we're gonna talk about the pastor's sin. No, listen, <laughs> this, is, this isn't an example for you to learn, but, um, and let me justify it, because this is when the CFL had teams in the States, and there was a Vegas team, so the BC Lions were playing in Las Vegas, so my buddy and I were like, we gotta go see the BC Lions play in Vegas, how cool is that, right? Okay. You, get, you with me? It's okay, all right, I didn't, all right, thank you, I didn't lose any money, it's all good, but listen, so we're driving, we're in my Geo Metro, my buddy and I, and we are driving to Vegas and we're trying to get there in time for the game. So we're, we're trucking it and we're driving through Death Valley and there's no air conditioning in my car. We're in August. You ever been to Death Valley in August? It's not pleasant. So we're driving through, we're like, oh my goodness, it's getting hot, wind down the windows, wind down the windows, like, oh no, wind the windows up. It's like a hot air dryer blowing on us. We couldn't escape it, it was so hot. When you're in the heat of the day in the desert, what are you looking for? You're looking for some shade, right? You're looking to be cooled down. What does God do? I'm gonna be a cloud to you. I'm gonna provide a cloud that's not just going to provide shade for you, which is so awesome, but this cloud is gonna guide you. You see, God didn't say, guys, there's the promised land. I'll meet you there. Make your way, I'll see you there. He says, I'm gonna go before you. In fact, it tells us in Exodus 13, verse 21, and the Lord went before them, by a day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here they are, God, so wonderfully, just guiding them, going before them, leading them along the way, but not just leading them, providing for them. A cloud by day to provide shade and cool from the blistering, beating down sun upon them. And then a pillar of fire, because it can get crazy cold in the desert in the evening. So God's a pillar of fire that they can see 
but then also be warmed by amazing of our God to do that. Paul says that they all passed through the sea. Now what's interesting is as God is leading them through by the cloud, he directed them right to the banks of the Red Sea. This is not them getting lost and they get to the Red Sea and all of Israel began to freak out. Because why? Well, they got the Red Sea in front of them. How are they gonna get through it? They got mountains on either side of them. How are they gonna get over it? What's coming behind them? Pharaoh's army. They feel trapped. They feel boxed in and they're freaking out going, Moses, have you led us here just to die in the desert? But this is exactly where the cloud led them. Why would God lead them to a place that seems like a dead end? Have you ever felt that in your life? You ever feel like God's brought you to a place where you're going, what am I gonna do, God? I feel trapped, I feel boxed in. I feel like, what can I, what can I do? How am I gonna manage this? God oftentimes brings us to this place for an important lesson, to learn to trust him and to stop and say, God, you're the one that's got to get me out of this. You see, God was providing an important lesson for Israel. In fact, he said to them here, as they come to the Red Sea in Exodus 14, verse 17, and I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them so that I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. What's God doing right now? God is showing his power and his glory and he's getting honor over all these things and all these people that are coming against him. You see, God is teaching Israel, y'all, I, he's teaching them, I don't exist for you. You exist for me. You exist for me to begin to show my glory through and for me to gain honor. Our lives exist not for us. Our lives exist for God. Our purpose is to bring honor and glory to God. And sometimes God brings us to a place where there is no other recourse, no other action to take because what do we do in those times where we're boxing? We oftentimes start clawing and scratching to find our way out to make some kind of solution. Oftentimes only making more of a mess of things instead of stopping and saying, God, I need to look to you. you. You need to help me here. You need to do a work that is beyond me so that you alone get all the praise and the glory for it. In fact, Moses instructs the people as he's led by the Lord. He says this in Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Isn't that good? Stand still. I don't like standing still, guys. I don't know about you, but standing still is not an easy thing to do when we feel like pressure is mounting, things are coming against us. Standing still is not oftentimes the, the action that we take, but God is teaching them and us something here. In those moments where you feel like things are boxed in, Trust the Lord, look to the Lord, because oftentimes the solution is beyond you, it lies with the Lord. And when it lies with the Lord, then guess what? He's the one that gets all the glory and the praise for the outcome, right? So they're learning this lesson here. They come up to a place as the cloud leads them. They are passing through the sea, and it says that all were baptized into Moses. You see, all the people passed through the sea, and in so doing, they were given a great picture a baptism. Now, baptizing to Moses sounds kind of weird. We're, to, we're instructed to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I haven't seen anybody baptizing uh, in the name of Moses. That's not what Paul is getting at here. But he's saying that there's a, an incredible picture here that just as Israel now is identifying and being linked to their leaders as in the history of the Jews, Moses gets propped up as just a, an incredible leader that is, is almost, you know, like just put in high honor. 
the people of Israel were, were identifying with their leader, Moses, right? They're baptized into Moses. Just as when we go through the waters of baptism, we're being linked to Jesus. We're identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, right? We're identifying being linked to Jesus. We're placing ourselves under his rule, his authority, just as the people of Israel did under the leadership of Moses. And it says that they were in the cloud and in the sea. So all the people followed the cloud. They enjoyed its shade, they were placing themselves in God, and then to pass through the sea meant that they were separating themselves from the former things, the things that were behind them, which is what? Egypt, Egypt, a picture of the world. Just as in our baptism, we're saying we're identifying with Christ. We're, we're leaving the former things behind, the life of sin that we once maybe enjoyed or did not enjoy, hopefully. We're leaving the life of sin, and now we're experiencing new life in Christ because of what he's done for me, that's what we see pictured. Paul says, oh, it's a great illustration now uh, of baptism. He says in verse three, all ate the same spiritual food and all ate or all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank to that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. How cool. So Paul says, they all ate of the same spiritual food and same spiritual drink. Now, Paul's not saying it's spiritual in the sense that it was just kind of like a mirage, like they were just dreaming it. It's like, you know what, just look at what, what you could be enjoying. No, it, it was... It was literal food and drink, but it was spiritual because it was given from heaven supernaturally, given of God, but then also it had great spiritual significance for us. How so? Well, how were they fed? They were fed by manna, incredible, right? Because here they are, they're going through the wilderness and they're going, man, we're running out of you know, leaves and fruit to eat. It's getting kind of dry here. What are we gonna, what are we gonna eat? And they, they complain, and we're gonna see this in the history of Israel, that man, they became chronic complainers, <laughs> and they suffered a lot for it. Instead, it's trusting the Lord. But here again now, they're complaining, thinking, you just brought us out in the desert to die. God says, no, I'm gonna provide for you, just watch. In the morning, you go out, and there's gonna be manna on the ground. They didn't know what it was. They're just like, that's what the name manna means. What is it? They go out there like, what is this? But they enjoyed it, and I think it was literally like, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts just falling down, <laughs> all out on the ground for them that they just eating off the dew. And so there were some great lessons here for this, right? Because as God instructs them to go and gather the manna now, they were to do what? They were to take what they needed for the day, in the morning. If they waited till later in the day, it was gonna be gone. Take it in the morning and take only what you need. Well, now they could have easily thought, well, I don't know if this is gonna come tomorrow or not. Man, there might be food shortage coming. We better stockpile, we better get ready here. And they could have, they could have gathered more. And, and in fact, some of them did. They gathered more than they needed for that day thinking, I don't know if it's gonna be here tomorrow. We're gonna, and what happened? It went bad. It didn't last. But then God says, on the Sabbath, you're not to take this. There won't be any on the Sabbath, but the day before you're to take two days worth. Well, two days worth, no, we tried that and it didn't last. No, take two days worth and it's gonna last through the Sabbath. It's, it's gonna provide for you. Special instructions that were given. You see, Paul says this is spiritual food they ate because of the, of the implication and the application for us in these things. How does this relate to us? Well, Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And just as they were to do every morning, go out and gather what they need for that day, I believe how important it is for believers to take that time, that quiet time, 
that time of devotion with the Lord early in the morning and just hear from the Lord, be in the word of God, be fed. This is what nourishes us. This is what strengthens us. This is what sets our day ahead now. Take what you need for that day and, and receive from it, be nourished by it. And don't think, oh, you know what? I'm gonna really bulk up on this devotion today. I'm gonna read not just one chapter, I'm gonna read two chapters so that I don't have to do this tomorrow. This is gonna be great. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't last. You're not to live off yesterday's devotion. You're not to live off of last week's you know, message. You're to be daily in the word of God, feeding off of it. Do it early because if you wait again, sometimes that moment passes you by. You think, oh, you know what? I got stuff to do this morning. I'll, I'll come and do it at lunchtime or I'll do it after work. And time just passes by. Set those clocks and take time in the morning to say, this is when I need to be fed and enjoy that time with you, Lord. So Jesus links us to himself in John 6 uh, when he's having that conversation, you know, the people and, and many disciples are kind of being turned off by what he's saying. He says, listen, you, your fathers ate of the man in the, in the desert, but that didn't, you know, fully satisfy. They still died off, but he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that gives nourishment fully that sustains life now. John 6 Verses 30 to 35, it's that great conversation of Jesus sharing that he's the bread of life. Then Paul says that, that they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. Again, Israel starts murmuring and complaining. There's no water. Water in the desert is, is essential. They're getting a little bit uh, worried about these things. What does God do? He tells Moses in Exodus 17, Moses, I want you to go and strike the rock. Now Moses could have said, oh, hold on, Lord. <laughs> Uh, strike a rock. Can I explain a few things to you about nature here? Because typically water doesn't come from rocks. Maybe try something else. No, Moses goes and he strikes the rock and water pours out. An incredible miracle that God provides for, and, and all of Israel is, is having their thirst quenched. But then another day came down the road where they start murmuring about water again. And what does God tell Moses? Moses I want you to speak to the rock. Water's gonna come out. Speak to the rock? Well, what does Moses do? It tells us in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, that Moses got a little bit upset with the people and he went up to that rock and he went before them and he said, here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses struck that rock twice. Water came out, but in so doing, there's a great consequence that Moses suffered as a result. God says, Moses, because you did not hallow my name before my people, because you didn't represent me rightly, you're gonna not be able to enter in the promised land. That was a huge cost to pay, but remember Paul says, listen, that rock was Christ. They, they reference, Israel reference how God was that rock to them oftentimes, that's pitching Christ, but in a greater way, this had spiritual application to us because as Jesus came for us, what happened, Jesus was, struck he was smitten he was beat he was put on a cross but in so doing he provided exactly what we needed living water was able to flow now into our lives and saving us and giving us exactly what we needed jesus was crucified he was struck but now all we need to do is speak to that rock we just need to turn to christ and call out to him Call out to him in, 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 in confession of sin when we err. Call out to him for the things that we need. But we seem to speak to the rock. We don't see him crucified again. And Moses ruined an incredible type and picture of what Christ was going to accomplish for us in this. And because he didn't hallow God's name before the people of Israel, 
he was excused from entering the promised land. How tragic that was. How important it is that we, as Paul is saying, I don't want anything to disqualify me from preaching the gospel and representing the Lord rightly. So we've seen Paul repeat a certain reference in these first four verses. Anybody know what it is? He uses the word all a lot. He's saying, listen, this wasn't, these, these blessings and privileges weren't reserved just for a, a select few of Israel. All of the people enjoyed seeing miracle after miracle of God. Yet, notice what we see here in verse five as we move into looking at the apostasy now committed by Israel. Look at verse five. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. With most of them, perhaps the understatement of the Bible, right? Because it's estimated about 3 million Israelites came out of Egypt. Conservative numbers would have it about 2 million, but let's say 3 million came out of, out of Egypt. Of those that were 20 and over, only two of them made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. See, that journey was only to take about a month from Egypt to the promised land, would only take about a month, but it ended up taking them 40 years. 40 years, why? Because of unbelief because they failed to trust. So the Lord said, guys, I am giving you this land. Every place you set your foot, I've given you the land. Not I will give, I've given you the land, it's yours, just take it. But they sent the 12 spies in the land. 10 of them came back with a bad report, only Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report, said, oh man, yeah, there are giants in the land. Oh yeah, man, it's gonna be wild, but God's with us and he's given us this land. They came with a good report, but all of Israel, they believed the 10 spies and the bad report that this was gonna to be too much for them, that they were just like grasshoppers in the eyes of the, the inhabitants of Canaan. And so God had that generation wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of unbelief died out. A huge price to pay in just not trusting the Lord. And here's the thing that Paul is building on, guys. These Israelites had glorious experiences, special privileges, they saw miracle after miracle, yet it didn't keep them from becoming disqualified or getting tripped up. They weren't safe from temptation. If it could happen to them, could it not happen to the Christians in Corinth? Is it not something for you and me to be on guard of? Paul continues on in verse six, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So Paul's using these things as examples right to the corinthian church and it certainly applies to us he uses the word typos for the word examples typos not like what you, you see in our newsletter that we send out every friday uh, uh, typos is like the the word for illustration uh, uh it's a type it's a picture paul says these are all pictures that have been given and presented to you that you can learn from and grow from don't you love when you read an illustrated book <laughs> okay just me i'm sorry about that but <laughs> I'll take that book, it's got pictures, thank you. Um, but these are pictures for us to, to learn from. The Old Testament, you see, is rich with examples and lessons for our lives today. Those that say the Old Testament is, is irrelevant or inapplicable, they're missing on some wonderful spiritual treasures for us. Now here's the thing that got the Israelites into trouble. As Paul says in verse six, they began to lust after things that weren't of God. They began to have their heart turned away from God's best and ideal to inferior things, to things that weren't the best. They had an unhealthy desire for other things. God was feeding them, sustaining them, but their lustful appetite began to get the better of them. And here's the thing, we're all most likely going to experience 
that pull of temptation and, and, and lust. Lust is that desire for things that are apart from God's will. Desire is a natural human emotion, but desire for the wrong things is what brings danger. Listen to what James says here in James 1 verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away. Drawn away from what? From the things of God. God says, man, I want your desire to be for me, for my word, for the things of God. But when you're drawn away and enticed, that comes from your own lust for other things. It's something that leads to death, as James writes. It takes us down a path that doesn't end well. Don't entertain lust. It's what Satan uses to engage us in sin, which brings separation from God, and if unrepented of, eventually leads to death. Paul continues on to look at the, the apostasy of Israel to show here's things that you need to be aware of to stay away from. He says in verse seven, do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is the crazy thing is it didn't take Israel long to enter into idolatry. They're led out of Egypt. They're seeing great. They, they've already come to the Red Sea. They got God guiding them by a cloud and a, and a fire by night. He's providing food and water for them. Then Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. He's up there for a time, meeting with the Lord. A, a, a amazing scene that's going on. And as the children of Israel are seeing Moses not come down, they're thinking, um, has God just kind of left us now? Has God and Moses just moved on without us? Like, what's happening? And they begin to think, we've got to provide another means for us. And so they all gather their jewelry, and Aaron says, you know, Moses, I just threw this jewelry in the fire, and I'll pop this golden calf. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and they begin to party and worship this golden calf. And in fact, they have the audacity to say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Can you believe it? Not only were they worshiping this false God, but now they begin to claim that this is the God that brought them out of Egypt. Now, we may not be those that fashion golden calves. We may not have statues in our mantle that, that we follow and worship. But idolatry is something that so easily creeps in our lives because it's anything that begins to have a greater affection for, uh, a greater passion for than God. If God is not your chief passion and desire and other things are, then you're walking in idolatry. You're lifting up other things above God. That's what Paul is saying. Don't enter into idolatry as some of them did. And you think, how could the children of Israel, seeing all that they've seen, fall that path? But Paul says, they got tripped up. They got tripped up. They began to follow their own desires apart from God. Don't let that happen to you. Because some of these Corinthians might have been thinking, oh, no, no, Paul, we'll never let that happen. No, no, we're solid, we're good. But if it happened to Israel, can it not happen to you or to I? Can it not happen to the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to? Paul continues on in verse eight, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. So here now is the account in, in Numbers 25 when the children of Israel, the men uh, uh, of Israel began to enter into illicit relationships and, and intermarriage with the daughters of the Moabites. Remember the king of Moab, uh, Balak, was looking to curse Israel, and he hires Balaam, and, and Balaam goes to curse Israel, and, and he can't, he just 
pray, you know, just uh, uh, praise comes out and he just honors the Lord, even against his will almost, you know. He can't curse Israel. God's not allowing him to do it. But then later on, we read in the word that Balaam comes to Balak and says, you know what? Yeah, I can't curse Israel. Sorry about that. But here's how you can trip up Israel. You begin to flaunt your daughters in front of them. They're going to intermarry and God's not going to be pleased with that. And God's going to judge them for that. And that's exactly what happened. And they entered into relationships. And, and as a result, a plague hit them and 23,000 died in that day. See, this area of sexual immorality was a real problem to some in the Corinthian church. It got addressed in chapter five as there was a, a, an immoral brother in the church in an illicit relationship. He's addressed in chapter six that, that such were some of you. This was a real problem that they saw all around their city. I mean, this was a very normalized thing. It's sadly such a prevalent sin, not only in our culture today, but to where we've seen great compromise in this area within the church and among Christians to think, oh, it's, you know, psh, God can understand. I have needs, right? God will understand. And we've kind of lowered the bar in a sense. And we've walked in compromise in this area, it seems, of sexual immorality. Don't let the enemy entice and lure you in this temptation. We've covered this much already in God's word of the harm and the danger of this. It may feel normalized, but it's not right in God's eyes. This is something that's been given in the confines of marriage and marriage alone, my friends. Don't compromise God's truth on these things. We continue to read in verse nine, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. How did they tempt Christ? Again, by chronic complaining. They put the Lord to the test in, in their whining and, and complaining and murmuring. They were tired of the manna, not having enough food and water. I mean, it, it was tragic to see that God was giving them all they needed, but yet they, they asked for more. They wanted things done on their terms. God had been so good and faithful to Israel, but they wanted things done their way. They tested the Lord, and so what did God do? Sent serpents. Serpents came, could you imagine that? What a scene that would be. Serpents just begin to come across and begin to bite. Many of them died. Many of them were poisoned by the serpent. Again, Israel needed to learn their role was not to complain, but just simply to trust the Lord. And it'd be those worshiping him. Interestingly, in this account, the remedy for those who are bitten was to do what? To look at that snake that was placed up on the pole. Why a serpent? The very thing that got them in this mess to begin with. Why would they look at that? The serpent, you see, was a symbol of evil or sin in the Bible. It was a serpent that came and tempted Eve in the garden, committed the first sin. And the people need to look at and realize what was causing their pain and suffering. The Israelites may have thought, man, I don't want anything to do with that serpent. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to go anywhere near it. That thing freaks me out. I'm not going near it. But you see, they needed to deal with the problem and not try to cover it up any longer. Similarly, we need to confront the issue of sin in our lives. Sin brings death. Romans 6.23 makes that clear. And we tend to try and kind of hide and cover up and say, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. We'll get through this. It'll be okay. And we try to cover it up. We try to move on and pretend that we're all good. But people are only going to be made right with God. People are only going to be saved when they take a real look at sin and understand that they are sinners and it is sin which has brought that poison leading to death in their lives. But the wonderful thing, guys, is that sin has been judged. 
See, Moses told to take a bronze serpent and place it on a pole. Why was it to be a bronze serpent? Because bronze in the Bible, it, it represents judgment. In other words, this poisonous serpent has been judged. It no longer needed to have that effect on you if you just looked toward it in faith. That's all they had to do. They didn't need to get up on the pole with it. They didn't need to make a necklace of it. They didn't need to, you know, do anything else. They just needed to look to it in faith. It's the same for us. When we realize what Jesus has done, he's come and he's taken that judgment for us and for our sin. In fact, Jesus used that whole picture here in, in Numbers, um, Numbers 21. He uses this whole picture in his conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter three. And, and he says there in John three, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he moves into the most quoted verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. But it's all stemming from this scene of the Israelites when they're stricken by these serpents. Some of them died. Some of them needed healing. They needed to look to that serpent, that bronze serpent. And it was a picture of how Jesus would be placed up on the cross. And he would take that judgment of God that you and I deserved for our sin. He would take that judgment that now all we need to do is look to Jesus in faith and know that he has paid the penalty for my sin. Yeah, I need to confront that sin. I need to recognize I'm a sinner. I need to, I need to be honest with myself and with my sin, but I need to take it to the Lord, the only one that can remove and take away that sin. He's done the work for you, but now you need to appropriate that for your lives in faith, accepting God's grace for you. He's done the work of salvation. Receive that today. Verse 10, again, many complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. That has in mind uh, Korah and then also uh, Dathan and Abram, number 16, when they rebelled against God's appointed leadership. They came to Moses and Aaron and said, you guys take on way too much for yourselves. Look at us, we can do all this work too. But again, God says, no, you're not just going against God's leadership. You're going against God. And God says, that's not gonna fly with me. So what does God do? He just gathers them together, opens up the earth, and he consumes them. That's so wild. Isn't that incredible? Did you imagine seeing that? Man, I'm glad we don't see that today, but whoa. See, these guys, they saw incredible things of the Lord, didn't they? And yet, they were still prone to getting tripped up. So Paul makes this appeal now for us. Here in verse seven, he says, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All these things that we've been looking at have been written to be an example for us. They're for our admonition or our instruction that we might learn from these things. Learn the lessons that we learned from Israel who had it seemingly all going on and yet still fell prey to sin, temptation, to lust, they were chipped up, they were disqualified. Paul says, I don't want that to happen to you. That's why he says, I wanna discipline myself lest any of this happen. Now, one thing we're to learn, as Paul says, is how, he'll address in the next verse, how we're not to be overconfident in ourselves. But he says, before we get into verse 12, he says, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. See, we're living in a time where Time is short. We're the, we're the people now, the New Testament saints that have seen the coming 
of the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and we're awaiting his return. We're living at this end of age time where all the things that the Old Testament were looking to, we've seen greatly fulfilled. We're living in this in-between time now where we've seen the Lord come and ascend to heaven, but we're awaiting his return again. We're living in exciting days, my friend, but they're days where we shouldn't be letting off the gas pedal. We shouldn't be just kind of coax, uh, coasting along. We're living in a day where we realize time is short and I wanna go all out. I don't wanna let anything trip me up, disqualify or disprove me. I wanna be that witness of the Lord Jesus in greater ways because time is short. I want more to come and know the gospel. That's what Paul was all about. That's why he's writing this chapter for us to learn. Oh man, don't let anything get in the way of God's best for you and of you being that witness of the Lord. So he says in verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. See, it would seem evident that those in Corinth were feeling perhaps a little overconfident with themselves. Again, thinking, oh, Paul, man, no, 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 nothing like this is gonna, we don't need to discipline ourselves like you do because, man, we are so solid with the Lord, everything's gonna be just great. Paul says, man, be careful. And be careful because the area that we think we are most strong is often the place that we are most vulnerable. It's the place that we oftentimes let up and think, I don't need to worry about that, man, I'm really strong there. And it's the area that the enemy oftentimes comes in through and brings that temptation that leads to a fall. Every person has that propensity to sin which is why we must stay in close proximity to Jesus because the moment you think you can move away from his ways and indulge your own desires is the moment you open yourself to a great fall. Just ask Israel here. Look at what Proverbs 7 says. And Proverbs 7 addresses that area of, of you know, sexual immorality and, and, and succumbing to to sin by that immoral woman. And it says in seven, Proverbs 7, verse 24, now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray in her path, for she has cast down many wounded and all who were slain by her were what? Strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Too often we think, oh, that'll never happen to me. I would never let that go on in my life. And take heed, Paul says. If you think you're, you're strong, you think you're standing, be aware. Because it's in that place that you think you're most strong that you will oftentimes have that fall. So having the right perspective of our nature and our need for the Lord's strength, not our own strength, we can't rely upon ourselves, we need to solely be relying upon the Lord. Having the right perspective of our nature and our need for the Lord is key, but having the right perspective of temptation is also important. Look at what we read in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's great promises there for us, isn't there? Here's some temptation truths for us to go by. First of all, your temptation is not unique or unusual. So often we can think, oh man, if people only knew the kind of temptation I have to deal with, they would give me a bit of a pass here. They wouldn't be so hard on me when I fall into this because nobody's had to go through what I've had to go through. You ever feel like that sometimes? 
Yeah, well, you're wrong because the Bible says, no, 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 this temptation you're experiencing is not uncommon. Others have gone through the same kind of weight of temptation and they've made it through. It's not unusual or, or, or don't think that you're so special that only you are tempted that way. Others have had to endure that and gone through it. Secondly, we see that your temptation is bearable because what does the word say there? That God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Sometimes we think, oh, I just can't handle this any longer. I just need to give in this temptation. God will understand because this is just too much for me. Oh, well, we fail to say or see, hold on, God's faithful. God's with you in this. God's gonna be your help and he's not giving you anything that, that he knows you can't handle or bear up. We may not be able to bear it in and of our own strength, but that's the key. You need to look to the Lord because God is faithful. This temptation is bearable, my friends. Don't give in thinking that it's beyond you. It's not. And lastly, we see that your temptation has a way out. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Every temptation we have, my friends, there's a way out. You need to stop looking and entertain the temptation and you start looking for that exit door because there's an exit door for you to get yourself out of that situation. Just ask Joseph. When Potiphar's wife is coming and laying hands on him, say, oh, you're coming with me, sweetie. He's like, no, I ain't. And he gets his tail out of there, leaving clothes behind. He's like, I am, there's, there's a way out of this temptation and I'm taking it. You see, Part of the Corinthian problem, of course, was that some in the face of temptation were not looking for a way out of endurance or way out by endurance, but a way in for indulgence. That's the problem sometimes for us is that we entertain. We hang out and we kind of think, well, let's see, let's see how this unfolds. Maybe, maybe I'll do better this time. Maybe I'll try to just see if I can withstand this a little bit. Instead of just going, I got to get out of here. I gotta move away from the source, from the place, from the people perhaps that are leading me in this temptation. I gotta find that way out and take it. David, King David, when he's at home and he should have been off at war, what does he do? He goes up on his rooftop and he sees bathing Bathsheba. It's a sight to behold, but what does David do? Lingers a little too long. Falls into temptation. You see those same stairs that led David up to the rooftop were the same stairs that would have gotten David out of temptation's way. There's a way out, my friends. We need to take it. Understand that we have opportunity to endure, withstand, and to move away from temptation. Israel didn't always do well in that. And they suffered the consequences. Paul says, I want you to learn the example Israel had great privileges, but they weren't enough to keep them from sin and destruction. Hey, we're a blessed bunch today, aren't we? Children of God, we're heirs of the promises of Christ, but don't let anything disqualify you or disprove you from being that witness of the Lord and experiencing all the fullness of blessing that God has for you today. Worship team, would you come up? We're gonna close with a song. Let me pray for us here today. Lord, we look to you here and we express our great need for you. We thank you that you're a God that loves us. 
But Lord, in that love, there's, there's justice as well. There's times where we need to, to be disciplined. But I pray that we have that attitude like Paul that says, I want to discipline myself. I want to bring things under the subjection of you, God, that I won't be disproved or, or disqualified in my life being lived for you and being that witness of you. God, may we learn the lessons today from Israel. God, who had it good, but yet they still fell to temptation. They still got tripped up. Let us not be overconfident in ourselves, but let us look to you and be solely reliant upon you to live out this life for your glory and your praise as a witness of you. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.